Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone-Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Annie Highwater. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies in Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. Um, sitting here in our Zoom room is Dominique Simon Levine. Hi, Dominique. She's Hi, drinking her coffee. I can see her. You can't. And also Kayla Solomon. Hi, Kayla. How are you? Hi, Laurie. How are you? Good. Good. So today's topic, what we're going to talk about, and this is this is a big topic, and I have a funny feeling we may circle back around um, to this topic because it's really powerful. Um, and we are talking about stigma and shame. So um, I thought, let me, let me pass it off to Kayla. And Kayla, why, why don't you get us started on this conversation? Well, what are your thoughts? Let's start out with a shout out to Benet Brown for anybody who wants to really go into the shame research because it's wonderful, she's accessible, and her work is really interesting. But if you think about shame, I like to use the word character assassination, that it is not just about, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is that you feel bad for doing a particular behavior. Shame is much more about your character. So if you think about shame in terms of be, having your, your character assaulted, something about you as a person assaulted, it actually is a position where uh, I guess it's, it, it, it provides this experience of there's something wrong with me as opposed to I did something wrong. And so it actually puts you in a position of not feeling your power because it feels like it's more intrinsic to who you are and there's something that's much more serious and um, life altering about it. And shame comes, shame is an early, early manifestation for us in terms of feelings and experiences. A lot of times when you're children, when you're a child, you feel a sense of shame and it's this feeling of being out of control, that you cannot control that horrible, horrible feeling inside of yourself. And when you look at it in terms of substance use, the way I would describe it is the people in my group that are talking about it look at what, and I'm going to use this word very loosely, what normal life should be like. Like my life should be this, my family should be like this, my relationship should be like this, and my children should be like this. And if you look at what a lot of the shame is about, it's comparing yourself to these expectations and shoulds, and it gets embarrassing. And you feel like you don't have a right to talk about it or that it's this terrible secret that should not be shared. So that's huge. The other thing about this is um, it's about your expectations about what your life should be and should have been. And if you're not comparing well, then it, it takes you down a notch and you have to work with that. So shame is very, very serious. And oh, that's what I wanted to say. If you look at getting help, 
Okay, I don't know about you. I'm old enough to know the days when if you wanted to go for therapy, people would say to you, but you're not crazy. I don't know if anybody had that experience, but you're not crazy. You're not mentally ill. You're not whatever. But it was a massive stigma to go for help, especially for therapy. Now people are actually running to go to therapy. So it surprises me, but it was not like that before. There had to be something very wrong with you to go for therapy. And people would use it to compare. So I never went for therapy. I figured it out. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. So there's the shame of getting help. There's a shame of being vulnerable. There's a shame of needing something, needing support from other people. And that gets in the way for many, 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 many people um, in terms of seeking help for themselves or their loved ones. Yeah, I. so I'm going to share with you kind of my shame story when it comes to, um, to therapy. Um, so I, my mother struggled with mental illness. My, um, my biological mother, um, struggled horribly with mental illness. And when I was young, she was in and out of uh, institutions at the time, institutions that, um, Some of them don't even exist anymore. She did experience um, electric shock therapy from the from that time. And eventually um, she ended up committing suicide. And so then I then have my new family, which consisted of my mother and my dad, um, my new mom and that family. And I can tell you that, of course, as a young child, uh, my parents were divorced. My mother um, was bipolar at the time. I forget what they they described her as um, manic depressant with uh, schizoid tendencies. Um, So we were my, my parents were divorced and my brother and I were living with my mother, who was not mentally well. And um, so we were experiencing all of that. Then she did commit suicide. That's another trauma on top of all of that. And then now I'm with my new family. And of course I'm having difficulties growing up. Of course I'm struggling in life. And um, then it became send her, send her to the therapist, get her into a counselor because there's something, she's just like her mother. She's, there's something seriously mentally wrong with her, right? So that was an awful lot of shame for me to have to bear. And and it was also incredibly stigmatizing because I was kind of screaming out in my head, I'm not, I'm not crazy right? I'm not crazy. I'm not like my mother. I'm not. And, um, and so it was almost like it's a punishment that I'm, that I'm um, in need of support uh, with my mental wellness. Uh, so yeah, I, I personally have experienced a lot of that shame. I, I don't think I carried it over too much later in life because I really believed that um, they were wrong, if that makes sense. That I al- yeah, I always had this sense. Um, I know this is going to sound, it's going to, and I, I talk to my husband about this all the time. There was always something internal inside of me that I knew they were wrong. 
that I knew that I was a good person. Um, I knew that I didn't, I really did not believe I was uh, uh, struggling with the same mental health issues that my mother was struggling with and that they were wrong and that going and talking to a counselor, I also felt like it was the only place that I could go and talk to somebody about what was going on in my life. So for me, even though my family was, was um, kind of placing that burden on me or making me feel a particular way, just that it, I had such a positive experience with my counselor was like, no, this is good. This is a, this is a good thing. But I can certainly see how that kind, of, that kind of atmosphere or environment could really make things go the complete opposite. Like, you know, no counselors for me. I'm not crazy. Right. But then you, you use the word bad or good or something like that. And I think that's key here because those are shame words. Those right. are the words that are associated with shame, good or bad. Like I'm a good parent. I'm a bad parent. I'm, my kid's a good person or not a good person. And, and I feel like that's the, the shame talking because the shame is very judgmental. The shame puts people into little boxes that they're doing something wrong. And even if you look at people and bet with their bad behavior, it doesn't make them bad or good. They're just making lousy choices. And so that that's the shame connection, because the other thing that comes up a lot with the with uh, family members is that they're they've done something wrong or they're to blame for the situation. Like if I was a better parent, my kid wouldn't be like this. If I right. could handle my partner differently, my partner wouldn't be doing this stuff. So there's that's a huge piece of shame that there's some kind of magical answer that because the person's not doing, they're causing this. And that is a huge sense of responsibility. And the other word that goes with shame is blame. You know, that you blame yourself, you blame the other person. And when you were talking, I was also thinking that in a lot of families, there's the identified problem, which is usually the person with the substance use issue. And I am a systems thinker. And so is um, Craft and Allies in Recovery, which right. is look at the entire system because if you're looking at your part in the system, then you have power and you could shift things a little bit. It's still not your responsibility, but it is the place that you could do something. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I totally agree. We do not disagree. <laughs> we do not disagree. Right. And you're and right. And you're, and you're right about just one thing, Dominique, um, you write about good and bad. And I try and avoid those words now. Um, it just slips out a lot because I'm right. I've always used them my whole life. Um, but you're right. It, it was a positive experience, I guess, is what I should say. But I'm also sure that a lot of those words slip out because it was so shameful at the time when I was going through this, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and just for whatever reason, I had that pushback inside of me to, to kind of come to that conclusion that, no, this is, <laughs> this is wrong, right? This is a, a positive place for people to go and get support. And that's what my experience was. Dominique, you wanted to say something? Well, I want to thank you for telling that story. I, I knew your background, but um, 
it's brave of you to share your upbringing and 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 what happened to your mom. I just learned a little while ago that my grandmother had been institutionalized and died in an institution at like 21 or 22 shortly after having my mom and and I'm I'm reading about that intergenerational wounding that happens and seeing my mother a little differently. I, I want to make a little aside point for families because I'm, I'm working on two points right now, which the first is that Al-Anon is really a, 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 a warm place to go to for shame. Um, you know, they say at Al-Anon, you didn't cause it. You, you can't cure it. You can't control it. And that, I think, helped so many families in the beginning. That's a very clear message. And it was a place to to sort of normalize the kind of thinking that families walked around with, right? That was never getting aired before. Um, but families want more. They want to take care of themselves, but they want to also take action with their loved one. And that's where craft comes in and that systems thinking comes in so that no one should carry the shame in the family, ideally, right? Yeah, it should be well distributed. Um, the other thing I'm thinking about, and this is sort of an aside, but I'm, it should be well distributed. Too well distributed. <laughs> and then you work on getting blame. rid of it. Exactly. Are we going to say? Your own anyway. <laughs> so the other thing I've just, I've been reading about a social anxiety disorder in which you you grow up, this, this, this happens in your teenage years, typically into your early 20s, where you, you develop such a, uh, a self-critic that everything you do and think and say is an embarrassment or shameful. And it's not the world producing the shame, it's yourself. And and it, it, it's a disorder because that internal critic can't be calmed. It's an, it, it creates such anxiety in the person. And you end up realizing your worst fears, your, your worst critiques, because your anxiety keeps you from moving forward. Yes. And the critic keeps you from, from being able to tolerate yourself. And, and, and it's about 15 to 20% of people with addictions have this, have this issue. And it's a very specific, painful place for, for, for anybody. And this can last your life and it can also be worked on. But as you were thinking, as you were talking, Lori, I was, sort of reminded of that deep shame and 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 you not having that internal critic right you actually you had the you had the person inside that said no 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 let's let's wait let's wait here and take a look at this it's it's not me it's not what they're saying but yeah yeah versus I somebody who's vulnerable to that social anxiety would have yeah. carried every bit of it into adulthood. Right. And, and I do, I do have social anxiety as, you know, with certain things. I know I do like even now, like, um, I do certain things. Like I make my husband walk in ahead of me or just certain things that I have these, um, I can't seem to get beyond it. And, and it actually makes me feel like there's something wrong with me. Um, but I do think there's something internal and I don't, and I don't think everybody has that. I think some people do and some people don't, you just, it just is what it is. But I, even as a young child and 
I remember, um, so I'll just share one thing. I lied a lot when I was a teenager, a lot. I lied if, if, of course, I know, I, looking back, I know I felt as if I was a trapped animal in the corner. And so my only escape was to lie. And it got to the point where you could, you could ask me, you know, you could say something to me like, you know, you were at the front door and I would say, no, I was at the back door, you know, when I was at the front door, um, clearly, and the person saw me, um, but it was, it, but uh, through all of that, and it was brought up a lot by my parents and my family, because I also, <clears throat> what's interesting about my situation is my extended family lived directly next door to me. And in fact, our yards had a fence and we would walk through it. And then the other aunt lived a mile up the road and the grandparents lived in the attic. They had an apartment. So we were like jam packed on top of one another. So anytime anybody did anything, <laughs> everybody in the family knew everybody had an opinion everybody would get you alone and start you know telling you what they thought <clears throat> um but so so the my lying was brought up constantly constantly she's a liar she's a liar she's a liar now inside of my head the entire time i remember thinking things like I have a funny feeling that this is normal <laughs> for a teenager to lie. And I, re I remember thinking those thoughts. And I also remember thinking, you know what? I'm really not a liar. I'm not. I'm in a circumstance right now in this moment that um, I feel I need to lie. <laughs> and so I did. And then when I, you know, when I ended up launching and leaving the home, not lying became a really important piece of who I was to become so that I could prove to everybody that I was not a liar. Now, I haven't necessarily um, shed that, um, that piece of me that my family sees, like, like they may still see, say that about me, I don't know, um, on some level. But in in me inside of me i am like nope i am not i will try and be as honest as i possibly can simply because of that particular time in my life and i know it, it sounds strange but but i what i find interesting is that those things really impact what we're going to do later in life so <clears throat> what am i trying to say here i'm trying to say that when we're families and we're confronted with something like lying, um, mental illness, substance use disorder, the way we respond to it and how we make that person feel about themselves can actually alter the outcome in the future. It can, it can um, change direction. So making me feel shameful about something can impact my response or what I'm going to do later in life. That's why, that's why it's essential that everybody in the scenario look at their own reactivity 
because if I feel ashamed that my spouse or my child is acting this way, which is really the origin of it is, you're a reflection of me. And so um, I need to stop you from doing this because you're ruining my life. Um, so, I mean, I think that that's a huge, a huge part of this is that um, it's, it's about what do, how do you, how does your behavior affect me? What's my thinking about your behavior and what did I do that made you act this way? So it's like layer upon layer of shame. What are other people going to think of me? What are other people going to think of our family? What are they going to, they're going to blame me for this. So there's that piece, but there's also the story. And that's why I am obsessed with reframing. Okay. Because I listen to your story and I think, well, lying is a great tool for you to survive that situation. Um, and I think that sometimes substance use is a good tool to temporarily shift the situation. If you're trying to go from one state to another, the problem is that when you get stuck in it, then you're trapped again. Um, and so, so if you look at all of these behaviors, they have positive intentions. And when you get stuck in them is when you have the problem. When you don't have enough of a menu, as I like to say, I believe that life is about having a menu of behavioral options and choices so that you have this awareness of like, usually what happens is we get out of our childhoods and we have like one or two choices about how to react to situations, how we think about the world, how we perceive things. And, And what I believe that growth is about is expanding the menu. So it's not this is the way I am, this is the way that person is, this is the way it's supposed to be. If I've learned nothing about getting older, it's that there's no supposed to, there's just what happens and what you do with it. Right. So that's how it works. It's like there's life and then there's how you handle life. And I also believe, and I don't know if I've said this before, that my belief about anxiety is it's built on the belief system that I can't handle this. So it, it, that is that what I have erased it down to. That's the bottom line. I can't handle people. I can't handle what they're going to ask me. I can't handle doing going to work every day. I can't handle my life if I stop using drugs or alcohol. I can't handle it. I can't handle right. my feelings. I can't handle my <clears throat> mental health issues. So it, it, the, all of this work has to be treated on that level. You have to go back to what can you and can you not handle and work on that. And you can't handle anything without a better menu. Right. I, I totally agree, which is why I I totally agree with what you're saying, because um, I, we do this as well in rest. We examine why, you know, when we know certain things, why do we behave a particular way? Right. So we know, like, if, if my loved one is asking me for $40 and you know, I know historically the fit $40 goes towards drugs. And I also know I want to affect change and I don't want my loved one to go and use drugs or use my money to go and use drugs. Why do I then repeatedly give my loved one the $40? Why do I do it? And I, I think it's so important, like the functional analysis, the, um, which would be really module three, looking at what are your own triggers why why are you because there's probably some really powerful triggers in there that are incredibly difficult for for me as mom given the 40 dollars that can almost stop me in my tracks 
and here's the $40, take it, you know, I'm not going to, and the fact that I have to face those fears and anxieties and worries, and, and I can relieve them pretty quickly, short term, I can relieve them pretty quickly by giving my loved one that $40. And I get some real positive consequences out of that. I get to feel like, um, I get to feel loved by my loved one because who wants them to hate you, right? Well, I get to, I get to be the hero in the moment. I get to avoid my fears. I get to avoid, uh, end the worry. It's, it's very similar to, I think, um, our loved ones using substances, right? You get a bad feeling, you get these triggers inside and you know, I can quickly make this go away and not have to deal with this, right? And uh, so just by going and using a substance, which is clearly a logical thing to do. <laughs> um, but right? do you hear yourself? Because what you're saying is that the $40, the, there's a fundamental belief in there that I can't handle the continuation of this conflict. Right. I can't handle what's going to happen if I don't give them $40. I can't handle my feelings in yes. engaging this way. So exactly. I'm going to take the easier way, which is I agree. Hand you $40. Yes. And that's the thing. And it's the belief I can't, I don't have the tools to do it. Right. And right. Exactly. And that's what craft does is inches you over to get the tools. Because when you, when you look at that, when you look at this is why granted the fear is through the roof, right? It's, it's, gut-wrenching, crippling fear and worry and anxiety that, and that's what, that's why it's so difficult to do what people are asking you to do, right? Because you're, what you're asking me to do is to sit through this gut-wrenching, crippling fear, anxiety, and worry, right? And, um, and to get, get through that. And in order to get through that, I have to sit with it. I have to, I have to find some way to soothe myself. The other thing is, is the anxiety and worry of forcing our loved ones to sit with their fears, frustrations, anxiety, um, with the belief that they're incapable of doing it, right? right? When how do we know that they're incapable of doing it if we never let them try and do it? That's why I think it's a disrespectful way to go about the world. Because if you assume you can't, you can't handle this, you're too fragile, you're too delicate. Imagine walking around with people believing that about you. It's like I, you I, had to believe people, they thought you were a liar, which you were not. You were just actually lying right but you're I, not a liar i agree with you but i also think um i i don't disagree with you and it was in those moments um that i started to realize that i was well, who the heck am i right like boy i'm you know i am assuming my son is incapable of things and also um realizing like one way that i did uh, one thing that I did to help pull myself over to the other side of helping to kind of let go and see if he's capable is it was to take little baby steps, but also ask myself, 
is what I'm asking my loved one to do so crazy that he couldn't possibly do it, right? So, or is what I'm asking kind of really reasonable? Like, just for example, if I would get into an argument and he would start being verbally abusive to me, and I would be afraid to pull away from the argument because I would be afraid of what he would go and do. He might go use, right, or do something and then could die, right? Then I started settling myself down and saying, okay, wait a minute, let's, let's say, am I, Am I being unreasonable asking him not to call me a witch with the B? <laughs> Am I be, is this really an unreasonable request of a, let's say, 25-year-old? And I was like, no, it's not. This is so not unreasonable. I'm going to start doing it because it's reasonable. And so it was with those little tiny baby steps and then the consequences of, you know, you know what? you know, setting down this healthy boundary, you know what, I'm going to go for a ride, I need to calm myself down. Um, I'm, you know, I'm just not going to accept this kind of behavior, we can come back and talk about it in a little bit. When you know, when, uh, when things have calmed down, but I'm going to take a ride and I would exit away from it, it, you know, get away from that particular situation. And I did circle around back and say, hey, you know, do we still need to talk about that, whatever it was that we were discussing. <clears throat> so, and then what ended up happening is I did it like three times max, and then it started to settle down. And I, and it's, there's nothing better than getting positive consequences or having it start to settle down and having some success with setting this healthy boundary to now launch me into, okay, now what am I gonna, what am I gonna do next? Like what, what other boundary am I gonna set up and see if I can't get positive um, results? And, and also coming to the conclusion and understanding that he was setting down boundaries for me and I wasn't following him. You know, things like, I got this, Ma, leave me alone you know, stay out of this. And I would be like, well, but don't you need help? Don't you need? And then it was like, no, no, back off, back off, Laurie. Get, you know, as soon as he says, I got this, I got to let him take it. I got to let him do it for himself because that's how he's going to get self-esteem and belief in his own ability. And that's going to be where I'm going to get relieved of the job. Um, but also um, <clears throat> just a few other things. That's why I, I guess that's why I like craft because it allowed me these little tiny baby steps before I could get to the big gigantic steps of, of really pulling away um, and being respectful of him being able to take care of himself. I used to think, Kayla, I did. There were times when I thought certain things he would never be able to do it. And I had just resigned to that fact. And he proved me wrong. And I am so glad that, that you know, I may, I may have thought those things, um, but once I started doing the baby steps, 
and pulling away, even when I thought he couldn't do it, I still pulled away. It was like, you know what? If he can never do it, he can never do it. But he did it. And then it was like, oh boy, I was wrong. I was wrong. And thank God I was wrong. <clears throat> and he still does it even now. There's still times when I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then he does it. And, and he is kind of out on his own a lot more now, um, if that makes sense. But yeah, it wasn't until I came to all of these conclusions and I needed tiny because the other thing I want people to, to bear in mind, I think it was also traumatizing. Um, the fear and the anxiety and all of that was, was I was needing, needing to sit through a lot of, um, a lot of triggers back to trauma, if that makes sense, in order to allow, does it, Dominique shaking her head, yes, in order to um, mm -hmm. make, take these steps to kind of uh, step back, if that makes sense. Grab it, look at it. If it, if it links back to something like shame or like a trauma, you've shed some light on it. It, 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 it disempowers it a little bit for the next time, right? And, and so much of module seven is about that. Just slow it down and pick out what you were just thinking. What were you just thinking? You know, is it old? Is it a pattern? Is it, is it really distorted? So really good stuff today. We went a, bit, we went a little bit everywhere, but I, I really appreciated it. Um, we talked about uh, how, how shame affects everything. And, it, and we didn't even touch on the sort of practicalities of what shame is doing in our culture and in our politics and in our treatment systems mm -hmm. and how we treat people with addiction, um, how they're treated in emergency rooms and all the rest of it. Um, and, and the importance of shame internally and, the, and, the, and how that causes um, comparisons with others in which you don't add up, right? And, and that causes anxiety. And that says you're not capable, or you can't handle it, you can't do it, you know, which sends you down a very dark hole. And so can we I say one we, thing, Dominique, yeah. about that, which is that, that I believe that we need to operate on the assumption that when we're reactive and when we're triggered, that there's shame involved and that it is old. And that if you operate that with about with that with the presumption of that, then you, that's where you begin. And as the Dalai Lama said, change begins inside of ourselves. So none of the outside politics or or culture of of uh, treatment is going to change unless we start with ourselves. And so we have to really claim this and let go of the shame and just be real about this. And that's when it's going to change, or at least that's our part. Well, this sounds great. This was a uh, wonderful <laughs> conversation today. And I don't even really think we got too much into stigma. Um, maybe maybe another podcast we can do stigma because I think we can go really far um, into that as well. But thank you. This was a this was another great conversation between the three of us. So thank you. Thank you, Dominique. Thank you, Kayla. Thank you to all of our listeners. And we'll um, be talking again next week. Thank you. Have Thanks. a good week. Enjoy your week. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. 
If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesandrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, our production team, and Mikael Mouboussin for the original music composition.